science. Welcome to Love and Science. I am Josh Warren, of course, and today on the show, astronomers observe a distant planet that rains you would definitely would not want to experience. And could we have another Jurassic Park movie on the horizon uh, with the world's smallest dinosaur? And Lucy McGowan interviews a STEM for Britain competition winner. But first, a bit of a hello, really. I'm here on the studio uh, in the studio on my own, I'm afraid. It's just me, Josh Warren, here on uh, 93.2 BCFM. Uh, Andrew is not here, I'm afraid, but I'm sure he's listening, in which case, uh, hello to Andrew listening. And, um, and Lucy, again, is also not here, uh, but she, we'll, we, we will be hearing from her later on. So you've just got the pleasure of my company, dear listeners, for the next hour of science chat and science news. And the first story I'm going to talk to you about, uh, we had the world at War of the Worlds there, uh, obviously very uh, Mars-themed, of course. And we've got a bit of news about Mars and missions to Mars here. Uh, and that is that the ExoMars rover mission that was due to launch this summer uh, has been delayed until late 2020, unfortunately. Uh, the ExoMars rover, it's called the Rosalind Franklin, which is nice. Uh, it will not launch this summer due to lack of time to test and uh, qualify problematic parachutes. So this is a, uh, a rover which they were due to send to Mars in the coming months, and it was uh, intended to land on the Martian surface and have a search for uh, life or signs of life. And uh, unfortunately, they're having lots of problems with the parachutes, I think, which is a little bit of a shame. Uh, the European Space Agency Director General Jan Werner, Werner, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Jan, if you're listening, I apologise. <laughs> uh, made an announcement in the press conference Thursday after a, meet after a meeting with uh, the head of the mission, uh, Roscosmos. Uh, Werner stated that the mission's proton launch vehicle, the landing platform and the rover itself were ready to launch, but the parachutes were a problem. And so they need a uh, bit more time to test them and it's not going to be uh, ready to launch this summer, I'm afraid. And, and what's interesting about this as well is that they're having to wait until the time is next right to launch it. The reason they were aiming for the summer uh, is because um, they needed Mars and Earth to be aligned and positioned in a certain way so that the launch could make use of things like gravitational slingshots and get there with as least energy as possible. Uh, of course, uh, planets move, and um, uh, there won't be an opportunity uh, when the alignments are just right uh, for this launch to take place until late 2020. So they said, OK, we'll try again for then. But hopefully they'll have uh, the parachutes and things sorted uh, for then. Uh, another story uh, this, this afternoon uh, is a bit more about the matter in the universe, I suppose. Uh, this is a story coming from the University of Sussex, and that scientists at the University of Sussex have measured a property of the neutron. So the neutron, of course, uh, one of the particles that make up atoms, make up you and I and everything we see around us. Uh, and they've tried to measure something about the neutrons 
more precisely than anyone has done before. And the reason they're doing this is because they're trying to uh, lend some answers to the question of why we have so much matter in the universe. Now, I, I'm hope, I hope I can explain this um, in a way that, that makes sense, but uh, when the Big Bang happened, it, uh, it threw off a load of matter, but also it also threw off a load of antimatter. Now, when matter and antimatter come into contact with one another, they uh, do something called annihilate, which sounds wonderfully violent, and they annihilate and essentially turn back into energy. Now, if the Big Bang uh, gave off equal amounts of matter and antimatter, as has been theorised due to uh, conservation of energy and such things, then the question is, why do we have all the matter we see around us? Because if all the antimatter and the matter uh, just annihilate each other and become energy, then that's what we would observe is left of the universe after the Big Bang. But, of course, we've got matter around us, which is wonderful to have because we're all here. Uh, but uh, some theories as to why this is the case, it's one of the great mysteries of physics, right? But one of the theories as to why this is the case uh, comes from uh, an asymmetry in neutrons. And apparently these scientists at the University of Sussex are trying to detect whether these neutrons have um, a certain asymmetry. So they're trying to find out whether uh, one side of the neutron is more positive than the other, and, it's, and so it acts like a sort of little electric compass or an electric bar magnet. Uh, and they're trying to look at these uh, neutrons with ever so precise equipment because... Uh, because these differences and these asymmetries in these neutrons are so small, you need incredibly precise machinery to spot it. But they've managed to do it. They've managed to build uh, a machine, which, I don't, which I'm not even going to pretend to know uh, how it works. Uh, they've, they've built a machine that is going to, uh, or has, I should say, uh, detected this asymmetry, this little uh, electric bar magnet effect on neutrons, uh, and it goes towards explaining a little bit about why uh, we have matter in the universe and it didn't annihilate. But what they found is that uh, the asymmetry was actually a lot less pronounced and a lot less significant than, they, than the models thought it would be. But that's not to say that it's a failure of a result, because, of course, in science, as, um, as science progresses, it's all about just disproving theories and finding evidence and using that evidence to support future theories and if there's a piece of evidence that comes up which happens to discount a theory then that's fine they just tick it off and uh, they continue with the theories that are still uh, that are, st that are still uh, proven and you are listening to bcfm 93.2 this is love and science if you wanted to uh, listen back to any of our previous shows uh, here, then you can go to bcfmradio.com and you will find uh, all of the previous shows as well as all of the shows of the uh, other wonderful shows we've got on uh, BCFM and you can binge listen to your heart's content on bcfmradio.com. Uh, I'm Josh Warren, of course, and uh, next up, 
Um, oh, I forgot to say as well, uh, I've got my phone here, and we've never done this on the show before, but what I thought I'd do is I'd start a hashtag love and science on Twitter. So if you've got uh, anything you want to message to the show, uh, keep it appropriate, of course, but if you've got anything you want to message to the show, uh, perhaps you're just enjoying it and you'd like to uh, let us know, then, then use the hashtag love and science, all one word, uh, and I'm uh, going to try and pick those, uh, pick some of those up at some point today. Um, our next story that we've got for you today, I mentioned it earlier on in the show, but uh, there is a planet uh, called WASP-76b, which isn't a very uh, <laughs> imaginative name. I'm not sure why it's called WASP, I don't know. But WASP-76b is a Apparently, I did have a measure of its distance somewhere here, and I've seemed to have missed it. Ah, no, here it is. 640 light years away from us, and it's orbiting another star in our galaxy. And uh, it's quite a, a simple planet, really, but what's special about it is, and why it's uh, been picked up in the news, is because apparently it rains molten iron, which just sounds hellish and, and, and horrible really but uh, yes astronomers have observed a distant planet where they think it probably rains molten iron the reason for this is is because wasp 76b happens to orbit around its star very very closely and of course as we know the, the closer you are to your star then uh, your planet is going to be a lot hotter and indeed it is in uh in the, this wasp 76b is apparently uh 2400 degrees c uh, and it can ex exceed uh, temperatures of that in the daytime and that is hot enough to vaporize minerals and metals on the surface um another thing that's interesting about this planet is that it's something called tidally locked with its uh, with its star, so as it spins, as it orbits, uh, it spins on its axis at the same rate as the um, uh, at the same rate as it as it orbits. So it, in the same way as our moon only has one uh, side that we see all the time, this WASP seventy six B only has one side that is ex exposed. I should say exposed to the star that you uh, that that, uh, that it's orbiting around and as a result it doesn't really have any nighttime it doesn't really have any days it just it's there's one side being constantly cooked by this star and the other side uh, stays darker and cooler and indeed the other the other side is it could be up to a thousand degrees cooler uh, on the far side of wasp 76b and it's this extreme difference in temperatures uh, that causes iron to uh, vaporize in the really hot side of the planet, and then as it rolls over in clouds uh, to the other side of the planet, it's able to cool down and rains as droplets. So uh, somewhere we probably wouldn't want to go on your holidays is WASP-76b. And uh, since it's related to the moon and that it's tidally locked, as I mentioned, as we've got a moon-related story here as well, you may have heard that uh, Earth has picked up a new moon, which is uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly exciting. Uh, it's very small, however. It's only about the size of a car. Um, 
yes, but technically, it's uh, I think it's maybe an asteroid or a comet or or something of of uh, of that ilk that has been picked up by the Earth's gravitational field, uh, and as a result, it has managed to get itself caught in orbit around our planet, and that is the definition of. A moon. We've got a tiny little moon in, in, in addition to our, to our main moon, uh, but it's only about the size of a, of a car, as I said, and it's expected to uh, manage to shuffle off uh, this uh, trap uh, in the coming months and years uh, or so. It's, it says it's about uh, three years that we're going to have this mini little moon uh, in addition to what we've got going on. Now, you may have noticed that we haven't got Lucy McGowan uh, in the studio today, but we are delighted to know that uh, she has uh, been out and about, and she's going to tell us a little bit about it now. Hello, BCFM Love and Science listeners. It's Lucy McGowan here from Love and Science. I'm really, really sorry. Unfortunately, I've not been able to come to the studio to record the show for quite a few weeks. I've been really tied up with uh, the research from my PhD and also some life admin things. And now, obviously, socially distancing myself from Andrew and Josh and the studio in general, trying not to catch or pass along any nasty diseases. I don't know if you've heard, there's a pretty bad bug going around. Um, but this isn't about coronavirus, you'll be very glad to hear. Uh, this is about a really cool competition I had the chance to go to last week. And that competition is called STEM for Britain. So STEM, STEM standing for Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths. Uh, STEM for Britain is a competition held at the start of British Science Week each year at the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. And it's competition for early career researchers, uh, so PhD students, master's students, uh, early postdocs, or people working in industry and innovation. And the categories for the competition are biological and biomedical sciences, chemistry, engineering, mathematical sciences, and physics. And I was lucky enough to be selected to go along to present my research in the form of a poster um, to MPs and to scientific societies and sponsors um, at this incredible event last week. So I went along to London to the competition uh, with a friend and colleague of mine called Ted Roberts. Uh, Ted is also a PhD student at the University of Bristol. He's doing his PhD in the School of Biochemistry, uh, working on immune cells called neutrophils in the blood. And Ted was quite rightly awarded the bronze prize in the biological and biomedical sciences category of the competition, a really prestigious prize to be taking home. So I caught up with Ted to talk about his research and his experience of the STEM for Britain competition. So Ted, um, can you tell me about uh, the research that you do at the University of Bristol and the research you presented um, at the STEM for Britain competition? Of course. Um, so my PhD focuses on these immune cells called neutrophils. And uh, what they do, they circulate in the bloodstream and they act as like the rapid responders of the immune system. So they're the first cells which are recruited to sites of infection. And what my PhD sets out to do is to optimise and develop a methodology um, to take stem cells, and take stem cells, I say stem cells, and then push them to grow and then mature into neutrophils but in a dish. And this has got a couple of sort of exciting applications which we might use in the future. So what are the applications of this research? Okay, so neutrophils um, are very important. And when their levels drop in, in <coughs> circulation, patients are prone to infection. So one potential application is that we could grow these neutrophils in the lab and then transfuse them back into patients to, to prevent, prevent infections. 
So where do you actually get the cells from, the cells in the first place? Do you make them in the lab? Or? So, so no, the, the cells themselves we isolate from blood samples. Um, so we, we've got a partnership with um, Hospital in Filton. Um, so we isolate stem cells from whole blood. Cool. So if I were to go and donate blood today, um, that might get sent to Filton and then end up back in your lab for this sort of research. Is that right? Potentially. It, yeah. what's, really, what's really nice is it's, it's actually a waste product of um, platelet donations. Okay. So, 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 so it's, it's stuff that would normally get thrown away, but we use, use for research. Brilliant. So you're actually making the most of what we've already got. Um, so what about other people in your lab? Are they all working on this same problem, trying to grow neutrophils put into patients? I'm actually so I'm working on a slightly different project to the rest of my lab. The rest of my lab actually start with the same sort of stem cells, but they try and produce red blood cells instead of neutrophils. Okay, so what are the kind of applications of these growing cells in the labs? Like, what sort of person might need these sorts of transplants? So, so for, the, for the red blood cells, obviously people who have really red blood, blood types, we could potentially make blood in the lab for them. So, so what are the red blood types? Just So, so, so I mean, they're probably not ones that you have heard of. Um, they're, they're really, really obscure, um, but they obviously find it really hard to, ma- to find a donor for, the, for these people. Okay, so it's not typical A, B positive. No. There's all other kinds of blood types that but, we but, don't but, necessarily know. For those, like the main blood groups, um, yeah. we can, like, the transfusion donor system is actually really efficient, so we'll probably stick with that. But really rare blood types people like this would need. And what about some sort of diseases? What kind of diseases would people have that might lead them to having low levels of neutrophils or blood cells? So... Um, for, the, for red blood cells and people who have sickle, sickle cell anemia, they require lots of transfusions, and this has numerous different um, problems down the line. For neutrophils and foreign chemotherapy, people's, people's neutrophil numbers often drop quite dramatically, and this creates a window when people are actually prone to infection. Okay, so uh, we currently don't have enough blood in our blood banks to supply these people, so the idea of your lab's research is that you could just grow it on a larger scale and then reduce the need for donors. I mean, that's, that's the pipe dream. I mean, <laughs> at the moment, it's, it's all very small scale, but we can do it. Um, but obviously, one of our aims in the long, long-term future is to scale up the process. Cool, yeah. that's really cool. So, um, the whole point of this interview is to talk about the STEM for Britain competition. Oh. So, uh, you won the bronze prize in the biomedical and biological sciences category, um, which is an incredibly prestigious prize to win. Um, so Ted's rolling his eyes. Um, but so can you just tell listeners a little bit about um, the STEM for Britain competition? I've already kind of briefly summarised it, but also um, what was the competition like and uh, what did you enjoy about the competition? So obviously the aim of the competition is to is for the MPs to meet um, PhD and postdoctoral researchers in the UK and get an idea of the research um, which is going on in the UK at the moment. And that, for me, the, the chance to sort of have a look around Parliament and meet these MPs face to face was actually was a real real lure. Yeah. And also, it, I mean, it was I love talking about my work <laughs> and um, especially it's interesting chatting it to people who actually aren't scientists. I speak to scientists all day, but actually to, to discuss it with someone who's obviously. MPs, but um, not, they're not scientifically trained, if that makes sense. Yeah, so did you actually get the chance to speak to your own MP? Um, yeah, so I e- emailed my local MP, Darren Jones, a few weeks before, and he kindly he stopped by for a few minutes, which was Amazing. actually really nice, put a face to the name, yeah. and actually I, I voted for him, so it was, it was nice. Oh, <laughs> good, <laughs> good, it'd be a bit annoying if you hadn't voted for your MP and they showed up, yeah. although the sport's really good. Yeah, so it was a bit weird on the day, actually, wasn't it, because, uh, we, so we were both there at the competition, and... There was a COBRA meeting going on at the same time. I did promise you wouldn't talk about coronavirus. However, it did have a bit of a weird knock-on impact on the actual day. It was an underlying theme, and, and yeah. the organisers mentioned it quite a few times. Obviously, there was no handshaking, which was well, quite weird. people did shake my <laughs> hand, and it was a bit strange. And then they would get hand sanitizer out, and then at one point someone bumped my elbow on purpose. Like, it's a 
it kind of substitute for a handshake. It was all a bit strange. I guess it was a few weeks ago, so we were, <laughs> we were in that transition period. Yeah, it's it's actually, I think on. we're quite lucky, actually, the competition even went ahead, because uh, perhaps if it was this week, they might have, have cancelled it, probably have slightly more important things to do. Although um, bringing MPs with scientists to talk about real science and science on the ground is probably a good thing right now that we should be encouraging. <laughs> I'll say so, yeah. Um, I won't go into any details about that. But yeah, it was a bit of a shame because I, I know that quite a lot of the MPs were coming after that kind of COBRA meeting to see the results of that, and then it, we uh, we had to end a little bit kind of earlier to do the prize giving. So I was impressed by how many MPs turned up though. Yeah. I mean, obviously they got hectic schedules, but especially I, I, yeah, it was, it was a good number. Yeah, we did. I did see a few familiar faces. It was quite weird. I couldn't quite pull everyone's name out of the crowd, but I was staring at people at the corner of my eye thinking, I know you. And yeah, <laughs> then yeah, they would yeah. look at me and I'd have to kind of look away, not look awkward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to tell who was an MP and who wasn't. But yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, so... Um, so how did it feel to win the prize? So you won the bronze prize. So just um, to explain that the prizes were gold, silver and bronze. And there was a gold, silver and bronze for each of the five categories. And then a few other additional prizes on the day as well. Um, and Ted won the bronze prize in the biomedical sciences category. So um, how did it feel to win? Did you expect to win? Not at all. <laughs> it was a nice surprise. Yeah. And it was an added perk. I mean, I, yeah, so I was very happy to win, obviously. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't, definitely wasn't why I was there. Yeah. <laughs> but a, a very big bonus at the end yeah. of the day. It's nice. Thank you to uh, Lucy and Ted there for uh, letting us know a little bit about that. You are listening, of course, to uh, Love and Science on BCFM 93.2. Again, a quick reminder, if you want to listen back to any of the shows, uh, or indeed any of the shows on BCFM, not just Love and Science, but if you head to bcfmradio.com and there should be some links there to help you uh, listen back to the uh, wealth of content on BCFM. Uh, our next story this afternoon is uh, could be the plot to a new Jurassic Park movie. I know there's been far too many Jurassic Park movies by now, but uh, scientists have found uh, what they believe to be the smallest dinosaur trapped uh, in amber. So you remember in Jurassic Park they had the uh, blocks of uh, amber, and that's where they... Uh, extracted the DNA from mosquitoes, well, it turns out that there's a very, very small dinosaur that's managed to get its head stuck in a block of amber. And so there's a very tiny skull that they found trapped in this amber. And it's it's absolutely minuscule. Uh, one of the uh, team members that found it uh, described it as the weirdest fossil that she's ever worked on. They, it was found in northern Myanmar, and it uh, consists of a bird-like skull trapped in 99 million year old amber. And so uh, they've written a piece about it in the journal uh, Nature, but it's a stunning find that may shed light on how small birds evolved from dinosaurs. Of course, uh, the the smallest uh, dinosaurs that we currently know of were bird-like, but they seem to weigh... Uh, hundreds of grams, whereas this thing, uh, apparently, uh, the dinosaur that this skull came from, apparently weighs less than something called a bee hummingbird, which is apparently the smallest bird living at the moment, and it weighs less than just two grams, apparently. So that's an incredibly small creature. They think it uh, would have uh, fed on insects and things. And uh, I've I've picked this story up from the BBC, but I'm sure if you uh, Google... Uh, small dinosaur skull. You can see that uh, you could find a picture of it there, and it looks a really bizarre-looking sort of 
bird, but it's got teeth and it's got this this enormous jaw and it just, it's it's a bizarre looking looking animal. Uh, more animal news here as well on BCFM is that uh, apparently scientists have used a trick that cancer cells uh, adopt uh, in order to uh, transplant limbs onto rats. So this is the story. Uh, they've had some uh, rats in the uh, in the lab, and they've tried to transplant a limb from another rat onto uh, onto one rat, right? And, um, of course, usually what happens is uh, bodies and immune systems tend to try to uh, reject new tissue. And if anyone's ever, ever had any sort of transplant listening, then you, then you may know. But you, you, you may know that uh, you need to have lots of sort of immune system suppressing uh, medicines and drugs to stop your body from rejecting the new tissue. Uh, and these scientists have tried to come up with a new way of uh, stopping your bodies from uh, rejecting the tissue. So they've used rats uh, to experiment with this, and they've uh, grafted some uh, legs and limbs onto uh, onto rats from uh, other individuals. And then they've injected it with a protein that is produced from uh, cancer-like cells. With the idea being that uh, cancer cells excrete this uh, protein, known as uh, CCL22. Uh, they excrete this protein, and it sort of blocks the immune uh, systems and the immune cells from picking up that it's a cancer cell, and it's so it's so it's able to hide in the body uh, because it's uh, blocking off the immune system, and so. They thought, well, okay, well, if that works with with cancer cells, I'd, would it work with uh, stopping the body rejecting these new tissues? And so that's what they've tried to do. They've tried to inject this CCL22 protein into these freshly transplanted limbs, and it turns out that it that they've made some progress, and it seems as though it might work. Um, the rats that were treated with this CCL22 protein seemed to stave off the rejection of the limbs for far longer than the rats that didn't have this uh, injection. And of course we're we're miles away from it being uh, rolled out into transplant patients just yet, but um, it's certainly an exciting uh, development in that it would it would certainly have to be uh, perhaps tested on things like pigs soon and then it would have to roll on to into human testing perhaps in the future but it's certainly an exciting development in uh, in transplant medicine and our final story well perhaps we might be able to squeeze in too we'll see how we go but our final story oh speaking of squeezing in too this is uh, this is very relevant this story uh, apparently two white dwarf stars have merged into a single star. Uh, so this is the story. Uh, astronomers have found a white dwarf uh, about 150 light years away that uh, was once two white dwarfs. So the pairs apparently merged about 1.3 billion uh, years ago. The resulting star is named, are you ready for this? It's a, it's a very catchy, catchy name for this star. WDJ0551 plus 4135. God, we got through it. Okay, so <laughs> that star, I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> that star apparently uh, 
it was formed from the merging of two white dwarf stars. And the way that scientists uh, at the uh, University of Warwick um, have managed to detect this or to realise that it's two stars joined up is because they've done something called spectroscopy on the uh, on the star, which is when you look at the uh, look at the light coming from the star, and depending on what wavelengths of light are not present or present, which, uh, you can tell uh, what the chemical or the ele- elemental, I should say, composition of the star uh, is. You can tell what it's made of. And they've noticed that this particular star uh, had not an awful lot of helium, uh, but an awful lot of uh, carbon. And apparently, that's quite unusual for a star of its size, and they couldn't quite work out why that was the case. Um, And they've theorised that it was probably because two smaller ones um, joined up. And so that's what they've discovered, and they've... Uh, and they're continuing observations on it, and uh, hopefully they will be able to... Uh, as I, I'm guessing that's confirmed, whether it's just a theory that that's the case, I'm not sure, but hopefully that some no, no, more news of that will surface uh, in the future. Um, we've got time for one more quick story, is that uh, if you live on the Falkland Islands, I'm not sure if anyone is listening to this show from the Falkland Islands, but if you are, uh, very, very good to good to talk to you and good to have you with us. But uh, apparently there's an ancient tsunami that may have struck the Falkland Islands, and because of the geology under the sea around the Falkland Islands, it's sort of geared up and poised to have uh, regular major tsunamis um, rolling on into the future. But don't worry, our our Falkland Island listeners, uh, it's not due for another one uh, for about another million years or so. So um, uh, you can sleep easy tonight knowing that you're not going to be washed away. (laughs) And we've managed to get through the whole show without mentioning uh, the virus that shall not be named. Uh, So I'm going to leave you today. Um, Thanks ever so much for listening. Uh, You've been listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2. I'm going to leave you, and I hope to see you uh, next week. Love and Science.